Well, good evening. Does God really care about you? Does he, does he really care about me? This is not just a question for unbelievers. This is not just a question for those who don't yet call Jesus Lord. This is a question for those of us who have been Christians for decades also. If we at some point had a great understanding of who God is, have we allowed our understanding of God, of his attributes, of his nature, of his character to be altered, to be eroded, to slip, to, to be changed by our environment, the world around us, the circumstances that we have found ourselves in of late? Have we allowed our vision of the Christian life to become an episode of Master Chef? I'm embarrassed at myself for even mentioning a cooking show right now as a sermon illustration, but, but here we go. My wife's been watching it for, for a while, and I have to tell you, I found it compelling. I didn't think I would. Uh, but it's a simple premise if you haven't seen it, right? It's a season-long show where you start with a bunch of people, and they're all cooking. It's a chef show. And they want to get to there's one person left to find the best home cook in America. And, and so every week, right, you, have, you lose some people. Some people are cut for one reason or another. And one of the things that makes you crazy about this show is if you're not a chef, you see people getting cut, getting dismissed from the show because of seemingly arbitrary minor infractions that you and I, maybe you know better, I don't, don't see anything objectionable about. Do you have this, this big famous judge, Gordon Ramsay, and he's this very stern, angry, swears a lot British guy, and he just dismisses people at the drop of a hat for something like, you know, I won't even try to find an illustration for it, but just something really small that we don't understand. Have we, because it's been a tough year, okay, it's been a tough year, have we because we feel like we're distant from everyone, we're unconnected to one another, we're, we're unconnected to church. I mean, I'm, I'm preaching to an empty sanctuary right now. Do we feel distant from God? And do we start to think that maybe God is a bit like Gordon Ramsay, that he's, that he's just waiting for us to step a toe out of line and just pounce on us, or just, just waiting for us to do this one minor infraction so he can then heap more abuse on us when we're at our most alone, our most vulnerable, our most hurt. It's easy right now to observe a difficult world, a cold universe, to be unconnected to everyone around us, and to feel like no one sees you or no one cares. And if our perspective on God is skewed in this way, we might find it easy to believe the lie that Satan wants you to believe, that God, who is holy and separate and, and way up there, and you, who are very, very sinful, is way down here, God could never love you. Well, there's truth to that. I mean, God is holy and separate and glorious and way up there, and you are sinful and, and broken and touched by sin. Our world, everything around us is touched by sin. There is a vast chasm between us, but it is a lie to think that God could never love you because of that chasm. We can see God's holiness proclaimed all across the Bible and rightly feel that we don't deserve to be anywhere near it. We are marked by our sin. We're broken people. And in our more honest moments, we don't necessarily like what we see in the mirror. If we want to understand who God is better, to answer the question of does God really love me, we would do well to remember that God became a man. 
and walked on the earth for 30 some odd years, Jesus Christ, God made flesh, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, is the right place to look to get an idea of the true heart of God, to truly understand whether or not he really cares, whether or not he really loves us. So let's open up our Bibles, uh, you can open up your Bible app. I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot to unpack in these five short verses. Uh, But to do it justice, we need to glance back just a few chapters in Matthew and and get a better idea of the context. So in Matthew's account, if we go back just a few pages and and read just the little section headings to get the gist of what's happening, uh, we get a pretty quick idea. So Matthew records that Jesus wraps up this big block of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount in, uh, in chapter 7. And then chapter 8 happens, and Jesus gets real busy doing stuff real quick. We see that uh, Jesus cleanses a leper. He heals a centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and then many other people who were sick and had demons oppressing them. He turns away those who would follow him half-heartedly or for the wrong reason. He calms a storm. That's kind of a big deal. He heals two big scary guys with demons who were terrorizing the neighborhood. And then chapter 9 starts. And Jesus, in an episode famous to anyone who's been in a Sunday school and seen the flannel graph of the guy getting lowered through the ceiling by his buddies, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And then far more controversially, Jesus heals his soul. He claims to forgive his sins. This is a direct, obvious, big statement saying, I am God. Now, this is off topic, but, you know, we're here. Don't ever believe when people tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. It's not true. He did it all the time. He was God. He claimed to be God. This has been your moment of apologetics with Pastor Justin. Okay, carrying on. Back to our story for tonight. So Jesus is in the middle of a bunch of healings. He's demonstrating a taste of what things are going to be like after he returns. Physical healing casting out demons, restoring the world broken by the fall. They're teeny tiny glimpses of what things look like when sin is removed from the equation. It's providing a glimpse of what Jesus will really accomplish at the cross, namely the defeat of sin. Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. Okay, so now, if you were paying attention to this list just now, you might notice something about it. Okay, you might notice, okay, uh, healing, healing, demon possession, gone, calming a storm. That's pretty big. That's pretty climactic. And then Jesus calls a guy named Matthew to follow him. Okay, that's really dull. That's, that's a real letdown. Why are we focusing there when we have so many other opportunities of things to look at? Okay, well, it, it seems like a letdown on the surface, Jesus calling this guy. We, I mean, st- stopping a storm, big, big, big. Uh, calling a guy, less, less big. It seems like it's a letdown. 
unless you realize this is just continuing the same series. This is Jesus healing someone, not someone broken on the outside, someone broken on the inside. Let's look again at verse nine and let's talk about who Matthew was. So Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Deductive reasoning tells us it is very likely he was a tax collector. I know, I know, it's hard to keep up with the logic. The tax collectors in the first century, right? This is not a well-loved class of people. Okay, these are Jewish citizens who have been given jobs by the oppressive Roman government who is in power, who's got, a, got their thumb on the Jewish people. And, and they said to these people who are the tax collectors, you can go ahead, charge your neighbors, whatever, whatever you want. We just want our money. So these people were seen not just as your friendly accountant, but these were more of a, a Benedict Arnold in the Revolutionary War. Or in the the American Civil War, a southern sympathizer spy in the northern cities relaying military secrets to the Confederate government. These are people who are hated. They're traitors to their neighbors. They're traitors to their own race. People do not like them. Okay, Jesus, traveling the countryside, healing the sick, driven by compassion for the people, saw someone who may not have been outwardly sick but who was dying of spiritual cancer. The same spiritual cancer that affects every man, woman, child, apart from the saving intervention of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to Matthew where he was sitting at his job in his tax collector booth in the midst of his normal day-to-day life devoted to material gain. Jesus was drawn to what was broken in this man, just as he is drawn to what is broken in you. When we ask the question, does God love me? Does God really love me? And we see stories like this, we should be able to see, however unbelievable we may find it about ourselves, that yes, God does love me. Jesus' entire mission on the earth was to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, go to the cross and die the death that our sins deserved, raised again, he was raised again to new life, the new life that that is the same life we will be raised to when he comes again. And with that mission in mind alone, we can see that Jesus clearly loves us. He came to die for us. That's not a small thing, but how did he live? If, If all Jesus ever did was live and die, you know, went to the cross, died for us, if that's all he did, that would be a million times more loving than we could ever conceive of but that his love for us didn't just start and stop there. When he wandered the countryside, wherever he went, he was drawn to people who were hurting. He, he saw someone with leprosy. He's like, yes, yes, I will heal you. He saw people being oppressed by demons and evil spirits. He's like, yes, I will heal you. He sees Matthew sitting, hated, probably by his own fault, hurting and he goes and he heals him. His love for Matthew didn't just start and stop at the cross, right? He loved him so much he couldn't stop overflowing with love, just fixing wherever he went, fixing stuff, making things better, okay? And that was Jesus then and that is Jesus now. The words behind me, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever, 
That's what this means. This is the character of Jesus Christ on full display then as it is now. Notice Jesus didn't wait for Matthew to get his act together before he went and healed Matthew. The devil wants you to think that you are isolated, that you are alone, and that Jesus could never love someone like you. But it's not remotely true. Jesus is not Gordon Ramsay. Matthew would very likely have had no illusions about how lovable or unlovable he was. He would have had daily reminders from his culture, from his neighbors, from the world around him, even if somebody was very polite, the dirty looks they gave him as they passed over the coins that they knew he was skimming off the top with. He was reminded all the time of his state. And notice he didn't go to the temple, repent, prepare a sacrifice, then go find Jesus in the temple and have Jesus say, oh, Matthew, I'm glad you're here. You're finally ready. Now, remember, Jesus came to him. Jesus comes to us while we were still sinners. But notice, Jesus doesn't leave Matthew in the tax collector booth. He doesn't just say, you're healed, your sins are forgiven, peace out, have a great day, have a nice life. All right, I'll catch you later. Jesus takes Matthew with him, and he makes Matthew a new creation. So the question, does God really love me? Yes, yes, he does. He really loves us. In light of this reality, what should our response to him be? Well, first, be healed. Be healed. Jesus knows your sin. He is drawn to you as a parent is drawn to a sick child. And for Matthew to get up and follow Jesus is for Matthew to be healed. And it's the same for us. Do not stay in the tax booth. I'm not saying quit your job. I'm just saying get up and follow Christ. Be obedient to him. Read your Bible. Do what Matthew undoubtedly was doing the moment that Jesus called him. He got to know Jesus. He went with Jesus. He learned who Jesus is. What is Jesus like? What does he want me to do? What are the purposes he has for me? Why did he call me? I need to know. Matthew would have follow-up questions that are not recorded here. If you've gotten derailed in your Christian walk, if you've fallen into a post-2020 funk and let your appetite for the things of God wane, get up, follow him. It's not too late. It, it, when you're dead, it's too late. Now it's not too late. If there's breath in your body, get up, get out of the booth, follow him. Know who he is better than you did yesterday. You will not regret it. Get up. Be healed and throw a party. Throw a party. Verse 10 tells us, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, what we have here is a picture of how we should all be reacting to Jesus. When we contemplate what he has done for us, what he continues to do for us, we should throw a party. 
We should invite our friends over. We should invite strangers over. We should share the Jesus who saved us with them. Now, there's one or two issues here in Matthew's context that are a little different than ours, and it explains a bit of why the Pharisees don't get what's happening. Matthew, as we said, is a tax collector, okay? He is not a well-liked person. He would not have been popular at the temple or synagogue. And therefore, the only people who would be willing in this society to associate with Matthew would be similarly unpopular people, people who you would also not find to be very popular at the synagogue. You know, it's that whole, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with thing, okay? None of these people are going to be well-liked or possibly even very familiar to the Pharisees. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, well, they're trying to figure Jesus out. They wanna, they wanna know what's going on with him because he's not lining up with their expectations. You see, Jesus was performing miracles. He was performing signs, signs that only the Messiah was supposed to do. He was teaching like nobody was, had ever taught. And he was doing all of these things that started to make him look as though this could be a real candidate for the Jewish Messiah, the promised military figure who was going to rise up, cast off the shackles of Rome, and lead Israel into a glorious new monarchy. But he's eating with those people. Didn't, didn't he know that, it, that those people are sinners? Doesn't, doesn't he know that that it's because of their sin, people just like them. It's because of them that we have a Roman occupation in the first place. If everybody was like us, we wouldn't have this problem. And Jesus is talking to them. And furthermore, doesn't he know that by eating with them, he himself is becoming unclean? See, that's, that's one of those gems. It's one of those things about the more you read your Bible, the more you get to understand the Old Testament the more gold jumps out at you from the page. Like, you don't catch this on the first five readings of the Bible, okay? But, but if you become kind of familiar with the Old Testament laws about cleanliness and ceremonial purity, you notice that an unclean thing and a clean thing meet, now they're both unclean things, Okay? If you, a clean person, go near a dead body, go near a pig, do any number of things, you are now an unclean person and have to get right in the temple before and perform certain rituals and do certain things and wash your hands a certain way and not let the water go back to the elbow, but it has to go down that way. I mean, it's very detailed, but you need those things in order to be clean again. Didn't Jesus know he was making himself unclean? Well, no. Jesus knew full well what was going on because Jesus was God. And Jesus, as God, could never be unclean. He was the only truly holy, clean thing there or anywhere on the earth. The only thing not touched by sin. Jesus doesn't become unclean when he encounters sinners. He makes them clean. He changes them. The only time where this happens is when Jesus enters the mix and sinners are changed and made clean. Their situation is different. It's kind of ridiculous. Jesus changes us when he meets us. It's enough to make you want to throw a party. The Pharisees, you see, knew how to keep a lot of outward ceremonial rules. They, they knew a lot of scripture, but they'd missed the point of scripture. They'd missed the point 
of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Brothers and sisters, we must always be careful that over the years of following Christ, we don't let our ideas about him slip, that we don't uh, start to think that, okay, yeah, yeah, God loves me, he saved me, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what the Pharisees did and just make sure I keep doing all of these things to make sure I stay in his love. We must be on guard lest we become judgmental hypocrites over the other sinners in the room's behavior, forgetting about, uh, yeah, that was me too. I'm still there. I still struggle with some stuff. Now, this is equally bad. This is not a, not a sin found in this passage, but it's worth noting. We should also be on guard to make sure that we don't let the holiness of God slip and only see the love, okay? Because you need both. You need both. You need the holiness of God and the love of God. One without the other is not the real God. The Pharisees had the holiness part. They nailed the ceremonial holiness part, but they totally missed the love part. And I won't hang out here too long, but when we read about the Pharisees in the Gospels, we should be careful that we don't condemn them and not realize that we can easily become them. So Jesus' response to them, it cuts deep, And it highlights everything that they missed. Verse 12 reads, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is not saying they're actually righteous, right? But rather they think that they are. The Pharisees didn't think that they needed healing, They were self-righteous. Brothers and sisters, watch out that this doesn't become true of of us. So verse verse 13, it's a quote. It comes from Hosea 6. It's an Old Testament prophet. And the prophet Hosea is speaking to the Israelites. And he's yelling at them. The Old Testament prophets are just glorious for yelling at people. It's good stuff. If you're needing something cathartic, like go read Jeremiah in particular, dude can yell. But, but Hosea is chastising the Israelites who are keeping the ceremonial things, you know, where they need to in order to be right with God. But then they're going and worshiping other gods. They're fornicating. They're, they're belittling their neighbors. They're stealing their neighbor's property. They're enslaving one another. They're not doing justice. They're not doing the the whole point of the law. What Jesus says there too is, this is just a fun aside, in the Greek, uh, was the, the go and learn what this means. That was like first century equivalent of like just super sick burn, okay? I mean, it's just like Jesus was really giving it to him. The Pharisees were telling Jesus, stop helping people, stop it. It's like they, they saw an EMT on the side of the road helping someone who'd been in a car crash. You're like, don't you know who that guy is? Let him die. Leave him alone. This guy doesn't deserve your help. And to be fair, they didn't. Matthew and his friends did not deserve to be healed any more than I do, any more than you do. Matthew and company were sinners. But Jesus came to bring about the kingdom the kingdom of God on the earth, to restore what was broken. Jesus came to sinners. He came to broken people. Jesus begins the work of healing people sick with sin, just like Matthew, just like us. What the gospel writers show us time and time again, Jesus seeks out the lost. 
He eats with the lost. He takes pity on them. He heals them. He stands up for them to the oppressive leaders of their day. Jesus, in a little later on in Matthew, in 1129, he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus' actions demonstrate that he came to seek and save the lost. Hebrews 4, uh, 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tested as, excuse me, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus sees you. If you've trusted, for him, trusted in him for your salvation, like Matthew did, he sees you as a father sees his children, as someone sees a beloved family member. Matthew throws a party and invites his friends because he is possessed by the joy and gratitude that comes from knowing what he's been given. And he knows what he deserves. And he knows those are two radically different things. The Pharisees are crashing the party. They don't get it. They're, they just, they don't see it. And how do we become people like Matthew, people who are defined by joy and gratitude? Well, we do what Matthew did. We grow down. I know those words don't make sense. I, we grow down. I'll explain it in a second. Just, just put a pin in it. The Pharisees, if they ever knew it, had forgotten their state before God. They'd forgotten that they could never measure up to God on their own terms. And when asked the question, does God really love me? They answered, yeah, yeah, God definitely loves me. And he's a gracious, loving God. And that's why I'm going to make sure I do this and this and this and this and this. So he's obligated to continue to love me and can't kick me out of the covenant. They think God is Gordon Ramsay. But we know that's not right, right? We, we know that their thinking had become transactional. They lost their sense of the love of God. I was recently reminded of the story of Charles Simeon, which is where the words grow down uh, came from. Charles Simeon, if you don't know, uh, was an English Anglican pastor in the late 18th, early 19th century. And he faithfully pastored Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years in the face of tremendous opposition. His own congregants were staging a coup to try and kick him out for years. This is an era where you would like have a seat at church, right? And, and that's not a joke about COVID stuff. I mean, like you had a seat, you had a pew that you paid for. It was your pew and it had a door on it. You could lock it. And the people hated him preaching the gospel because he preached the gospel, the whole gospel, the whole thing. And it was it cut people to the quick. They didn't like it. So what they did, they locked the pews so no one could sit in them when it was his time to preach. And so people came to hear him, but they had to sit in the aisles to do it for years. And faithfully, year after year after year, he got up and with joy kept preaching. He kept ministering to people. He kept going. And, and why did he do it? How did he do it? He had joy and peace in what he was doing in the face of this opposition because he knew how much he was loved and he knew what he deserved. Every day he spent time thinking about his own sinful state. And rather than getting depressed about that, he marveled all the more at, at 
the holiness of God and the sinfulness of Charles Simeon and that the blood of Christ covered that entire chasm and then some. Simeon in his own words uh, said this, by constantly meditating on the goodness of God and on our great deliverance from that punishment which our sins have deserved, we are brought to feel our vileness and utter unworthiness. And while we continue in this spirit of self-degradation, everything else will go on easily. We shall find ourselves advancing in our course. We shall feel the presence of God. We shall experience his love. We shall live in the enjoyment of his favor and in the hope of his glory. They knew how to talk back then. They knew how to talk. They knew how to write. I'm willing to bet that Matthew and his friends could endure the abuse that the Pharisees may or may not have been heaping on them fairly loudly and rudely at that time because Jesus was with them. And not just in the sense that we have Jesus with us. I mean, like, no, no, Jesus is right there. He's over there by the dip. Jesus is there. And, and I don't care what you tell me. I have Jesus with me. Friends, this is exactly the same for us. This is true for us now. There is nothing we cannot endure in this world if we have Jesus with us. Because he loves us, because he is with us. This grow down thing, this is not a call to navel gazing, to, to being depressed and like, oh, I'm really terrible and just like be a human Eeyore, okay? This is to never lose sight of that chasm of God is so holy and so good. And yes, I am so all the way down here. I know who I am. I'm never content with who I am in thinking I can do anything. And I see that he covered that whole distance. How much does he love me? It, it shakes us to our core when we see it. He really loves us. So how will we respond to this? Will we, will we do as Matthew did, respond to his call and be healed? Will we make our lives a party, celebrating what Jesus has done in us and for us and what he continues to do in us and for us? And will we, will we seek to share that with our neighbors, telling everyone we meet, everyone that we are given an opportunity to, that they too can be healed and know what this joy is like? Let's make it a daily practice to, like Charles Simeon did, pour over the scriptures to see the holiness of God, the sinfulness in our own hearts, and rejoice that Jesus loves us enough to call us and to heal us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you that you love us, that you love us more than we could ever know than we can ever imagine, than we ever could conceive of with our feeble human brains. Father, give us a greater sense of that love. Let us be people marked by your love. Let us be characterized by that love that flows so freely from you and spills out so abundantly from you. Let it spill out of us. Let it touch our neighbors. Let it touch our city. Let it touch our families. Let it touch everything and everyone. Let people see the glory of you in our lives. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.